0: I want you to think as you're there and Esther, and we'll read in just a moment, but think of think of a moment, uh, uh, think about some of the defining moments in your life, in your lives. When you came to a crossroads, a sort of fork in the road, and you, you perhaps made a choice that really changed the course of your, of your life. Some of these are, are moments not of choice, but actually of circumstances. So it could be... Uh, that that crossroads could have come to you in the form of a biopsy result, or a job loss, or a promotion, um, or some you know calamity like a house fire, or it could have been some unexpected large inheritance. But but the, these these moments, general, generally, it's a combination of both. It's it's we're, we're faced with new circumstances, and that leads us to have to make choice or choices and that really affect our lives. And so, but, but there are these defining moments that change us. They, they redirect our steps in ways uh, that completely alter our, our future plans and and our futures. I've tried, I mean, I think of several in my own life and I think of many examples. This is a sort of a a, a mild one, but it, it was a significant one for us. I, I remember when we came close to graduating from college, and we're looking at uh, different seminaries to possibly attend. And I had sort of three choices. I grew up in Southern Baptist churches, and and um, that was all I'd really ever known. So one of the seminaries was a Southern Baptist seminary. Uh, One of them was a seminary uh, with Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, and then the other was a seminary in California, the Master's Seminary. And so. The decision obviously wasn't life or death. This is not like we're talking about an Esther here. this is a sort of crossroads, but it was a significant one as I think back uh and and I didn't realize the significance at the time, but at the time, to choose to not go to a Southern Baptist seminary was effectively to say, "I probably won't be able to serve in a Southern Baptist Church, which again is all I'd ever known and and again, I had no like big objection to serving that, but it it just would those doors would sort of be closed um so we ended up going to California, and, and apart from the training itself of seminary, it was there that I met and worked alongside one who became my good friend, David Cleland, and David is from Fayetteville, Georgia, and so it was through him that I was put in contact with Howard and and Baraka, and uh, Dave's uh, home church is Faith Bible Church in Sharpsburg, is Pastor John Krotz and Howard, are good friends, and John's going to be speaking at our missions conference, and in a few weeks here um, and so i th- but I, I think about that that little choice of choosing a seminary as this defining moment again this this crossroads in my life, not in a dramatic uh way, but it had a significant impact on my future, much of which was- to, totally unbeknownst to me at the time um, and and for my family but but how do we how do we handle those sort of crossroads in our lives those those defining moments. How do, and not just when we're in them, but how do we interpret them as we look back on them? Um, was it was it just was it just us and our choice in those moments, or was God, or maybe even just some kind of impersonal fate, was that in charge, and we were just totally passive and just being kind of drifting along? Is it, are those our only options? Well, Esther as we've, we're seeing already in this book, it, it's holding these two ultimate realities up for us. The, the sovereignty of God and His, his working and providence and all things and ordering all things after the counsel of His will. And yet, our freedom and our responsibility. And these, these are both held up, these twin realities. It, 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 Esther doesn't, the author doesn't reconcile these for us or explain them in this really didactic way and unpack them, you know, in the like systematic theology we would do in something like that. It, what it's doing is it's showing us just simply the reality of both side by side in, in, in this true to life and true story in these events. And so the sovereignty of God, and this is what I want you to see, it doesn't, it doesn't get us off the hook when, when we're called to make difficult choices. But it does help us when we're faced with difficult choices. And I hope that we'll see that today. So as we turn to Esther chapter 4, we, we come to really the pivot of the whole book. Um, here we find Esther standing at a crossroads. It, providential circumstances have been part of what's brought her here. Personal choices have, have, have been part of that. But they brought her here. And in this case, it's not just her future, but it's, it's that of God's people that's at stake at this defining moment. So this is a significant place that we come, and so we're picking up the story from last week. Uh, the preacher just didn't finish, so we're we're gonna we're gonna pick up where we left off last week, and we'll kind of summarize, and and we're just gonna keep moving and cover chapter four today. But remember from last week, Haman the Agagite. Agagites so those ancient enemies of Israel, and so he. He is an enemy of the Jews, we'll find and we'll read in just a moment. But in Haman's rage against Mordecai the Jew, the one who refused to bow before him after the king commanded everybody to bow before Haman, he has determined, we saw this last week, to exterminate the entire Jewish population. And so in, 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 in like, it's Hitler-like fashion that he's doing this. And this is, the, this is his plan. And so now in, in Paul Harvey-like fashion, let's look at the rest of the story, or at least the rest of this part of the story. So now it's easy to miss. We read this account. I've said this along the way, but it's easy to kind of compress everything, and, and it's almost like the whole story of Esther happens in a couple weeks. It, but it happens over a, whole, a full decade. And so uh, a, a lot of time has passed since Esther became queen, five years in fact so you go back to chapter uh, 2, verse 16, you see it's in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. And now in verse 7 of chapter 3, where we're at now, we're in the twelfth year of his reign. So five years. And so a lot of time has elapsed here. And so as Haman and his advisors, they're, they're forming their plans to, to exterminate the Jews. They have to determine a date for when this atrocity is going to go down. And so Haman grabs a calendar, and he grabs some dice, or purr. And, and, he, and he takes these. So he and his servants, they cast purr, they cast lots, they, they roll the dice uh, to determine the date for this genocide that's coming. And the dice give them a date that's about 11 months out. And so that's plenty of time for them to finalize their plans, get everything worked out. And so the date's circled on their calendar with a big red sharpie. And here here this is when it's going to happen. And so having chosen the day, Haman immediately heads to the palace and to see the king in and the, and the full scope of Haman's dastardly plan here is unveiled for us. So look at, at verse 8. Haman says to Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. And so he wants to use the king. He wants to use the king to make one of those irrevocable edicts that we've seen already, these decrees to wipe out the Jewish people from the face of the planet. And so and notice how cunning he is. He doesn't tell the king who the people are. He just says this is a certain people. He leaves it rather impersonal. All he says is that these are lawbreakers. He doesn't provide any evidence for that, but that's his, it's just his word. And he also says that keeping these people around won't profit the king. They do nothing for you. And again, he gives no evidence of that claim either, and it's not true at all. If, 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 if it weren't for the Jewish people, uh, Ahasuerus wouldn't be married to Esther. If it weren't for the Jewish people, Ahasuerus would be dead because it was Mordecai the Jew who told about the plot to assassinate the king. But it doesn't matter. So before the king can ask any more questions, gather any more information from Haman, uh, Haman sets the hook in Ahasuerus, and he knows exactly what he's doing here. He knows what the king really cares about, particularly after this campaign in Greece where he's lost so much of, of the resources of the kingdom. He cares about money. And so he will, the, the king will gain 10,000 talents of silver, about 375 tons, by wiping out these, these people, seizing their possessions. And so as worse, he doesn't bother asking any questions. Uh, after all, Haman just gave him 10,000 really good reasons to exterminate these people, and that's enough for him. And so the text says that the king, verse 10, took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, The enemy of the Jews. So to give Haman the signet ring was was essentially giving him virtually limitless authority to act on behalf of the king. It was like saying you can sign my signature on any documents you want. Not only that, verse 11 says that he gives him a blank check essentially to spend whatever he needs to carry this edict out. So he has the full backing of the king of Persia. And so Haman takes the ring, he writes this law in the name of the king, he seals it with the king's signet ring, and the edict is sent out to every in every language, to every corner of the empire, this vast empire, uh, instructing people that on a certain date, eleven months from now, verse 13, that they're to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day and to plunder their goods. Wow. As we talked about last week, so I just want to remind you and kind of as we pull up together and, and get where we're going this week, God is, God is over even those wicked, wicked plans in His providence. Hey, Haman really is making these evil plans. Ahasuerus really is signing off on them. These impersonal dice uh, are, are setting dates. But none of those plans, none of those people, none of those choices, none of those objects are outside the ultimate control of the Lord. We see that here. Proverbs 16.33, even of the, the lots, the lot is cast into the lab, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so people, people really can, people really do plot against God's people in very evil ways. There, there really are wicked plans that are made all the time. But God's plan for His people always triumphs. Always. Now look with me again at verse 11. See what the king says to Haman there. He says, the money is given to you, what else? The people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. As you're saying, you, you, the people are yours to do with them as you want. That's not true though. <laughs> it's not true. The people weren't Ahasuerus' to give away. The people weren't Hamans' to receive. As a gift, they are God's people. God will never allow his purposes for his people to be ultimately thwarted by the by the plans of of sinners. never listen, just thinking in the in our context the application that the devil himself plots our demise he is working to ruin us he is he is, he is he's working for our destruction, but the one who began a good work in us, church, will be faithful to complete it. He will. Nothing will ever interrupt God's purpose for us in Jesus Christ, Romans 8 tells us. And we could go on and on in looking at these promises of Scripture. Now, does it always feel like that? Does it feel like that to you today, perhaps? Are there days when it seems like the enemy of our souls kind of has the upper hand? You better believe it. We feel that sometimes. But the testimony of the Word of God, the, the witness of the Spirit of God in us, they're to be trusted more than our senses and our perceptions and our feelings. We believe what God says. Now, again, I don't know all that you're going through right now. I know some of you are going through really difficult things. I don't, But I don't know what's overwhelming you today. It could be these national or global concerns that really are... Are, are, are you're struggling with as you read the headlines you see what's going on in our world or in our nation if those concerns could be just just weighing heavy on you today or it could be very deeply personal concerns things that maybe nobody else here knows about I don't know what it is I don't know in what part of your life you're struggling to see God in it or to understand what he's doing I don't know but what I do know is this is, is your God is alive and he is active. And he, he has a plan. And his plan is for your good. And there is nothing that can stop his good plan from being accomplished. Those things are true, church. It's not just psychological babble to make us feel good. That is that is reality. And we need to believe that today. And so listen. Believing and embracing and trusting in God's providence as we're seeing it here. It doesn't it doesn't cushion our lives from real pain and real difficulties and real trials and, and, and real hardships in life. That's not what this is about. It doesn't remove the target on our backs so that, that that so that people or, or or there won't even be demonic opposition against us as God's children. No, we live in a world that's full of conflict. We live in a dark, very dark world. We're being a Child of God means there will be trouble. There will be difficulties. Jesus assured us of this before he ascended. But we will never be left alone. We will never be spiritually unprotected uh, or, or find ourselves outside of the reach of God's providential care where there is just this chaos going on and we're, we're just subject to that and God can do nothing about it. and He's not involved. That, is, that will never be the case. Nothing is outside of His hand. The invisible hand of providence, it holds us, it keeps us, it protects us, it guards us, it preserves us, it leads us, always. It's always at work. Now let's continue here, then in chapter 4. So just imagine the scenes that played out as this edict, the king's with his own signet ring that cannot be revoked, this edict is read throughout the empire. Just, Just think of what this would have been like. Imagine being summoned along with everybody else in your little town or village or city, however large it was. You come to the city gates and you hear the latest message from the king. And this guy, you know, is kind of clearing his throat and preparing to read this edict. And you listen to what he says and you feel like this must be some bad dream. This cannot be happening. We're told. What the immediate response was in Susa, this is back in chapter 3, verse 15, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Of course they were. You just think about this. The the people here, that they have the right, no, they have the obligation to kill their Jewish neighbors, men, women, and children, and to plunder their goods on this particular day, about 11 months from now. Of course, chaos ensues. And so and as this horrific news spreads throughout the whole empire, the, the way chapter 3 closes, you know how it ends? You see at the end of chapter 3, Haman and Ahasuerus are enjoying a few beers after they've had this day of plotting the genocide of the Jewish people. They're having a few drinks. So then, chapter four opens by telling us how Mordecai how he reacted to the news, and so it's almost like a like a news segment. CNN's out there; they have their reporters, and we we go now to Susa to get the reaction on the ground. That's kind of the scene that I have, and so the camera zooms in on Mordecai in verse one, and and it, the text says, "When Mordecai learned all that had been done." Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. I want to read just, I I read this yesterday and I I found it just a great description of uh, getting the sense of what this would have been like. And so just listen to Mike Cosper. I've mentioned this book before. His description is, he says, at the king's gate, Mordecai heard the news of the edict. He gripped his robes with both hands and tore them open. Tattered threads hung in the air, his skin exposed. He cried out, his heart as broken as the garments. Mordecai went home and took them off. From a chest, he pulled out a heavy, rough garment made of goat's hair, the same cloth used to make bags for grain or spices. It irritates the skin, constantly denying a mourner comfort, numbing or forgetting. So he wore it without anything else. He walked to the fireplace and gathered Fistfuls of gray ash, pouring them over his head, his face, and exposed shoulders. This was the practice of mourners, a way to identify with death itself. He returned to the city like a ghost, a man driven mad by the looming promise of death. A vision of death foreshadowing his own violent end. This is Mordecai. So so, so it's like they're, they're zoomed in, and this is Mordecai's reaction. And then you can, again, using that newsroom kind of uh, imagery, it's like the news anchor back in the studio saying, well, scenes like this are being played out all across the nation right now. You see it in verse 3. In every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And again, you notice Mordecai, he doesn't just weep at home alone. He is doing this very publicly. And so mourners were not permitted to go inside the city gate. Remember, the city gate is actually a building. And and so he, he he can only go to the entrance of that gate. And so he probably, at this point, he hasn't seen Esther in years, maybe five years, the whole time she's been the queen. He may not have had any contact with her. And And so, but he thinks maybe, I think this is the intent of going there maybe she will get word of his distress because his, the king's servants and her servants are going in and out of that gate. And, and he's right. And so Esther hears through her servants that her cousin and her adoptive father is deeply distressed. He's torn his clothes. He's laying in sackcloth and ashes. So verse 4, so she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. So her first response is, and I wonder why my, own, or why my cousin is so distressed. I wonder I wonder what it is I wonder what it's about I wonder how I can help with whatever issues are causing the distress Her first response is simply to send him some new duds So she sends him these clothes he refuses the new clothes and 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 she sends her servants then to find out why it is that he's mourning What has go- what has happened You need to understand something here Esther has no clue about this edict at this point She doesn't know what's going on life in the palace for her as, as the queen. She, this, this meant completely isolation, complete isolation from God's people. Really from real life in the empire. She was cut off. Well, all the Jews from India to Ethiopia, including Israel, right there in the middle, they're weeping. They're mourning over this decree. They they know that their extermination has been decreed by the king and it cannot be revoked. And so the whole the empire, all the Jews everywhere, they're mourning. Esther is clueless about what's going down. She's just completely isolated from the covenant community, but she won't remain in the dark for long. And so Esther sends probably her very most trusted servant, he's named here, and and she sends him to find out what the real problem is with Mordecai, verse 5. To find out, the text says, what this was and why it was. I just like the way the ESV translates that. What it was and why it was. Um, But Mordecai tells tells the servant all that's happened, including, verse 7, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So Mordecai gives the eunuch, Esther's servant, a a written copy of the decree so so he can show it to Esther. And he tells the servant to explain the decree to her. And and verse 8, to command her to go to the king, to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. To beg his favor, to plead with him. What kind of language is that? That's the language of prayer, isn't it? That's the language of prayer. That's the kind of language that would normally accompany fasting and sackcloth. But here, instead of seeking God's favor, instead of pleading with Him for deliverance by means of prayer, Mordecai is placing his hopes on Esther's ability to intervene with King Ahasuerus. But this isn't a simple ask at all. You can just imagine, as Esther hears this from her servant, the the blood draining from her face as she realizes what she's being asked to do. Not just asked, but really demanded, commanded to do. So listen to how she responds to Mordecai's appeal, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. There were only only seven men in in the king's court who were called the king's friends. That was the technical term. And they were permitted to quote, see the face of the king, which meant they could come in uh, uninvited into the king's presence, except when he was sleeping with women. And so Haman had this kind of access to the king. Esther didn't at all. And so basically Esther's saying to Mordecai, this is is going to be a suicide mission. I cannot go before the king like this. And you know it. I'll die. You want me to risk my life gambling on the mood of this evil, capricious, erratic tyrant. That's what you're asking me to do. But the risk is even greater. It's heightened. We see, that, as she says, that apparently the king's desire for Esther is cooled after five years of marriage. And so the text says he hasn't called her in to him for 30 days. And listen, the king didn't sleep alone. So Esther's been sleeping alone. The king's been sleeping with other women for a month now. And so you can imagine the odds are slim to none that the king will actually welcome her into his presence and not kill her, have her killed on the spot. And so this it seems like this plan is dumb. It won't work. It's, it's doomed to failure. And so Esther gets word back to Haman saying basically that. It's just it's not doable. Verse 13, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape death any more than all the other Jews. So Esther shouldn't count on her comfortably isolated position in the palace to, 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 to protect her. She's part of the Jewish community too, and her, her life, her future is intertwined with theirs. Oh, you're, you can't count on that. If, if they die, she'll likely die too. And not only that, verse 14, but it, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Fester won't help. That doesn't mean there won't be help that comes for the Jews. That's what Mordecai's thinking and saying. He's expressing confidence. Jews won't ultimately face complete annihilation. Help will come from another place. Is that a human agent? Is that a reference to some direct, divine intervention? We have no idea. We're not told. The author is intentionally vague here. And so somehow, though, the the Jews will be delivered. That's That's what Mordecai believes, what he's saying. But Esther's doom is certain if she fails to act. So Mordecai's thinking, it's yes, Esther... Your life may be in jeopardy if you go in uninvited to see the king, but your doom is certain if you don't do that. Now, is that a threat? Is this more of like mafia-like family? Uh, Is he threatening to reveal her identity as a Jew, an identity that she's up to this point concealed, to rat her out? Or is he invoking... Is he going to invoke some kind of divine judgment on her if she, if she doesn't act? Well, Esther may be wondering the same thing. And uh, again, one commentator, uh, one of the more helpful commentators says, the author leaves the reader with tantalizing ambiguity. We don't know. But much more positively, Morde- Mordecai goes on, verse 14, and who... Knows this is the most well-known book in the Book of Esther. This is the probably the only verse that most of us ha- come to mind when we think of Esther. But who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Maybe there's a purpose in all that's happened up to this point, one that exceeds Esther's own personal interests. Maybe there's more. All the circumstances of Esther's life that have led her to the Persian throne. Perhaps it's just for this moment so she can intercede for her people. Who knows? Now Esther's thoughts about all of this, like we've seen throughout this book, they're hidden from us. We don't know exactly what she's thinking, how she's processing this. But we know that after this, Veiled threat and this suggestion of a greater purpose, we do know what she does. And she decides to act as Mordecai requests. And so she says to Mordecai in verse 16 Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You think about it. she's about to go before the king. she's not going to be able to say a word. It's not like the king's going to say well let me have let me hear you make your case for appearing before me, and then I'll decide if you can actually come and get. no she won't be able to say a thing it's only he's she will only be judged by the way Ahasuerus judges most things, and that's by appearance and so. He's either he's gonna live or die based upon how she looks. And 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 so Esther, with that in mind, she doesn't spend these days dolling herself up and 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 making herself pretty and picking out the best outfit and deciding how to do her makeup for this this moment. She chooses not to eat or drink for three days before seeing the king. This means she's not gonna be looking her best. I mean she doesn't Try to be presentable, as we'll see in verse in the next chapter. But this is this is a change for Esther. We see progress in her life in the story, and we see it right here. The, Esther is essentially saying, "I'm done doing things my way. I I am. It is out of my control now. If I perish, I perish. Now." We read that, and it may sound a little bit differently than it and than it should to our ears. The Hebrew construction here it's it's making it clear she isn't just talking about death as one possible outcome of this scenario this is This is almost an inevitability if she obeys mordecai here it's It's almost an inevitable outcome of choosing this course of going. And trying to appear before the king. And so one commentator said, This is the despairing expression of submission to the inevitable. She goes as one would submit to a very risky surgery because there is a chance of escaping death that way. That's what this is. So this is there's there's, there's this resignation in her speech here. In other words, this isn't maybe the way we we want to make her the this grandiose heroine and, and we want to say this is like this bold, courageous statement of faith. You know, I, I'm going to seize this moment for God. It's probably not what this is here. One commentator said, this is more of a whimper than a bark. And so, so rather than appealing to her own strength, to her own smarts though, she is. She's letting go. and She's just in desperation resigning herself to the inevitable. She's just throwing herself on God's mercy. I perish perish and this is the turning point in the narrative you can see this you can see it one in terms just simply of character development as you would read any story because Esther she pivots here she moves from being in this very secondary and subordinate position where she's she's following the commands of Mordecai Mordecai is telling her what to do she's doing it that's what's happened up to this point now she becomes primary she becomes central in the story this is the last time Mordecai Ever commands her to do anything. Instead, from here on, we read things like in verse seventeen. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther ordered him to do. This is change. Now, for Queen Esther personally, it's also a defining moment. This is a crucial decision that has to be made. One that will, and only she can make it. And upon it hangs her future. But not just her future. It's 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 the future not just even of her broken family, but of God's people, of His promises. It was this decisive moment for Esther and for the entire Jewish population. Who knows? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, we're we're familiar with the end of the story. Most of us are. I, I realize not all of us are. And I, I've had that in mind as I'm walking through here. This is just side note, footnote for the preacher here. But I realize, because I... I was in Bible college and seminary, really hearing Bible stories for the first time. I grew up in and around church, didn't hear the word taught, kind of through through books of the Bible, and so it was it was a little more moralistic. So I realize there are people here that this is not that familiar to you, and some of you this is very familiar. So I'm trying to navigate that line as we go through this series, and and so if some of you may seem pedantic to be rehearsing these stories in the detail, we are. Some of you may be exhilarating because you're hearing this for the first time, and so. And all of you in between, just bear with me through this. All right, in that footnote. But but we're familiar with the end of the story. Many of us are. And so we can think the, the answer to that question for who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We think that's really obvious because we know how it's going to end. But given given where we're at in the story at this time, given the nature of Esther's rise to prominence by this really unethical marriage to this this pagan king, Given the the fact that she's concealed uh, all that made her completely distinctly Jewish um, for for the past five to six years, that question is real. Could God really use someone like her after what she's done or what she's failed to do? The answer, no, is yes. And God's providence. It, he works through all kinds of sinners. That's the real hope for this. And what else does he have to work with? Looking around this room, there's nothing else. We're a mess. God is God is able and God is mighty and powerful to work with even us, just as he does with Esther. So God has her at a crossroads here. We understand that experience. And so with that in mind, just two statements, kind of pulling this together here, and then we'll sing to the Lord again and the first one is this is when god brings us to a crossroads we we will be faced with uncomfortable choices we we know this experientially so you think in the context of Esther here Esther faces a decision that she so far up to this point managed to avoid but she can do that no longer and now she has this clear and life changing choice to make The the, the option of living in the blurred shadows between these two worlds and kind of holding these two identities as Esther the Persian queen and and secretly Hadassah the Jewish, uh, Jewish teenager, that's no longer an option. She can no longer live in that gray space. Either she will try and take her very privatized faith to an to take it a step further and deny any and all association or connection to the Jewish people, and she's gonna just trust in the in the empire the, uh, to protect her against itself, essentially. That was a real option. Now Mordecai says that's not an option, you're gonna die either way. But but there you could have thought Maybe she could have just tried to wait the storm out. That was one option. Or she will identify herself publicly. With the covenant community in, in their hour of need and risk and risk her life in an attempt to save God's people. That's the crossroads. Neither option looked promising. Neither option held out much hope for her, humanly speaking, or really for God's people. If she appeared uninvited before the king, as we said, she stood a good chance of being hanged in the gallows, just like those eunuchs we saw last week were hanged for plotting the king's assassination. And even if she survived and, and was able to get a hearing before the king, who in the world thinks she has much of a chance of convincing him to revoke an irrevocable decree? And how, 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 how will he possibly be receptive to hearing her concerns and her appeals? On the other hand, though, if she trusted in the empire... and and became essentially the only surviving Jew if all of the other Jews are eradicated and only she remains hidden away in isolation, what would that mean? It would mean the complete and final separation from her community. It It would be a slow and lingering death of a different kind, essentially. And so we see the significance of the crossroads in Mordecai's words. Look at verse 14 again. For if you keep silent at this time, you and your father's house will perish. That's really, in in essence, the hinge of the whole Esther story. Mordecai is reminding her, not, not only of her Jewish ethnic identity, but of her Jewish spiritual identity there. He's saying, essentially, your spiritual identity will have ended with your father's death. Remember, she's already an orphan. Withdraw now and be withdrawn forever. That's what he's saying. So standing at the crossroads in this moment of decision, she made her choice and agreed to show solidarity with the Jewish community. And, and as we know, she became the human instrument that the Lord used to, to preserve his people, to keep his covenant promises, and 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 he would help wouldn't need to come from another place because Esther agreed. Now, I I think about this, and again, that Cosper book helped me here turning over some thoughts, but Life in the palace for Esther, as she faces this crossroads, there are a lot of similarities between life for us and our world. And I've thought a lot about that this week. We, we live in a world that's full of comforts and distractions, don't we? Which is what hers was. It's a place where we can escape. It's a place where we can lose ourselves in entertainment. There are boundless options for this. Yes, we're not surrounded by servants like Esther was. We don't have golden place settings on her table and, and all of those luxuries of, of life that she enjoyed, but we can lose ourselves in an online world. We can plug AirPods in our ears, noise canceling, block things out, and we can just be absorbed in, in our smartphones and this, this whole world of distraction and entertainment and endless, endless humor and, and just stuff. We can binge watch uh, TV shows until we die. We can we can have we have a seemingly unlimited variety of food in ridiculous quantities all around us. We do. We can shop until we are just shop till we drop. and it's We can do that in brick and mortar stores. We can do that online. There's just no end to the deals we can find and the and the and the bargains we can come into. There's no end to the opportunities to engage in in gossip online or political bickering and and on on through social media we have and if none of those things work we have mind numbing drugs and drinks that can can take care of it for us i mean it, it it so it's in this context this is our world we're it's not that different from life for esther and and it's in this world that our choices become so uncomfortable when we come to those crossroads the Lord says to us, in this place of excess and of distraction and entertainment, He says, "What take up your cross and follow me, not in a one-time moment, but as this is what it means to be his disciple, and we stand at a crossroads and we could say, I, I could just hide my true identity and I could stay comfortable here. I could avoid the risk of a cross-bearing." Christ following, gospel proclaiming life. I just keep my earbuds in. My phone, keep my head low, blend in, assimilate. And I you know, I'll maintain my my Christian identity in a in a privatized way. I'll keep my my Christian name. But I'm I'm in, I'm comfortable, protected, I'm safe. We face an uncomfortable choice. We stand at a crossroads. But without, with any real thought, this is what I want you to see. It, it's not like we're weighing a good option and a, 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 you know, a, a safe option and a, and a dangerous, risky option that potentially has great return. That's not, the, that's not the dilemma, though it feels like that at times. With any real thought, we realize that our choice is actually between death and death what kind of death we're going to face because living for comfort, living for self, living for entertainment, living for distraction, that is its own kind of death. We we realize that. I think with any self-reflection, there's a there's a numbness that we can find in those things to sort of mask the pain that we we feel. But it it is also something that keeps us from true, lasting, enduring joy. It keeps us from a life of blessing. And so the uncomfortable choice is between a a cruciform, a cross-shaped life, which is death, walking in Christ's steps that opens the door to life and joy and blessing and death, the death of living for self that becomes a slow misery. And so we've talked about this from the very beginning. We're exiles in in our world. We face all kinds of crossroads. Will we we just fully assimilate to stay comfortable? Or will we courageously identify with the Lord and with his people while we seek to be a blessing in our world? So when God brings us to a crossroads, we, we face we will face uncomfortable choices. The second part, and this is the, the good news for us, is when God brings us to a crossroads, we are helped by an unshakable hope. We are helped by an unshakable hope. And as we've said throughout the, this study, God is absent from Esther, but he is everywhere in Esther. He is, he is here in silhouette, we've talked about. He is not named, but his invisible hand of providence is all over the place. He is, He is In the book of Esther, it's, it's like this... It's like a small room, and at the center of this little bitty room, there's this huge elephant that's never mentioned, but it's obvious to everyone in the room. And so this elephant in the room is the presence and the sovereign grace of God. And so, the, the, and so our hope as we read this story, it's not ultimately in Esther, it's not ultimately in Mordecai, it's not in you know, dice that we throw. Our hope is in that unseen, unheard, unrecognized God. We get help from him because you—you you just and here's a way to see this. Think about the story from a very different perspective than than maybe that we've considered it up to this point. We're thinking through the lens of Esther and Mordecai, these Jews that were you know lived in, kind of hid that part of their life and and kind of had this divided identity up at least up to this point in the story. But think about those who might have been truly faithful Jews living in Susa, a member of the covenant community who was who was a very explicit in their worship of Yahweh who who was serious about walking according to the Lord's precepts who was who was enduring in their trust that the Lord would deliver his people and so you've spent your whole life in exile though for generations now your people have been in persia and your family and so you've watched your friends and your neighbors struggle against assimilation and, and how to how to live there faithfully before the Lord. You've suffered with them the, the anti, anti-Semitism that's alive and well in Persia at that time. You've dealt with this your whole life. And now you've learned about this death sentence. Eleven months from now, the entire Jewish people are going to be exterminated. And now suddenly, a Jew who's named for a foreign god, Marduk, he shows up and he says, we have only one hope, the Queen and, and you let's, let's fast for her. Put yourself in your shoes hearing that. She's a secret Jew, you learn. She's married to this evil tyrant who's planning to exterminate you. This teenager who's compromised everything to be where she is. This girl is going to plead for your life before the king. That would sound like a pretty dim hope, wouldn't it? It would. Yet... Is this not how God so often shows up and works? In the silence. In the absence. At the time we least expect Him to. In the darkness of doubt and humiliation and loss. and In the most unlikely ways possible. This is when God's grace is most powerfully manifested. Through weakness. Again, it's God's hiddenness that makes this story so hopeful for us, isn't it? Because we can so relate. Let's just say to you, whatever dark place you find yourself in today, brothers and sisters, hear me. Whether, whether it's by some unforeseen circumstance in your life that surprised you, whether it's by your own choices or actions, whether it's by the plans and schemes of other people against you, listen, God has not forgotten you. He has not this account is it, calling us to cling to hope, however dim, however small it may seem to you, to cling to the confidence that whatever evil uh, it, it might currently seem to reign, the story of God isn't finished yet. His invisible hand is, is at work. So, brothers and sisters, your life, your life rests in the hand of the God who is full of infinite faithfulness and goodness and power and grace, and you could not be more safe and secure than you are right now, no matter how it seems. Well, listen. Esther and the Jewish people, they're fasting. But all the fasting in the world, and that's a right response, but all the fasting in the world is not going to ultimately accomplish deliverance for his people. What they need is is a mediator. And they need someone who's willing to go and plead their case where they cannot go. To go into the presence of the king. And this is exactly what Esther agrees to do, isn't it? We're going to see this. Well, if it's true that a mediator was needed to intercede before King Ahasuerus, how much more do we need a mediator to intercede for us before the great king? God Himself. The Lord is utterly different from King Ahasuerus, so let's not draw those connections. He is wise, He is kind, He is just, He is a faithful perfect ruler. Nonetheless, He is King of Kings. He is Lord. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and He's the one against whom all of us have rebelled. We're born in rebellion against Him, shaking our fist at Him in in, in anger. And so fallen, sinful people like us, we can't just simply stroll into the presence of that King and and, and unannounced and uninvited and expect to live. On the contrary, His edict has gone out against us, declaring us worthy of death because of our sin. That's the edict. And this, this decree has been disseminated throughout the empire, the world. And it's this, that the soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. And this decree is fixed. It's settled. It's irrevocable. In, 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 a, in an even greater way than Ahasuerus' ever could be because this wasn't made in ignorance. It wasn't made as some kind of hasty decision like the case here in Esther. This was made by perfect wisdom before the foundation of the world. So who then argue our case who will come to bring relief and deliverance for us who will mediate for us well church we know there's only one it's jesus christ the the true mediator between god and man who in the fullness of time for such a time as this he took on flesh and he appeared in the world. He, far from being you know comfortably isolated away from the community like Esther was, Jesus identified himself fully with us in every respect. Hebrews tells us he took the form of a servant. He lived as one of us in this fallen and sin sick and depraved world. Then after he completed this his life of absolutely perfect obedience, he went in before the Father into his presence, knowing that he wasn't just risking his life, but he was actually laying it down. For him, if I perish, I perish, meant not just the probability of the death, but the absolute necessity of the cross. And it wasn't just the swift execution, the drop of an axe, or the hanging from a gallows that he faced. It was the full torment of hell concentrated form. In the garden on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, you remember he's sweating drops of blood as he's anticipating the agony that's to come. He's facing death and wrath. So in agony, he sought some other way there. He prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. But there was no other way in which our sin could be judged and we could be saved. So he drank the cup of God's wrath and he drank it down to the dregs for us. Through his death, we have received life. If We are in Christ. This is our story, isn't it? This is our hope if 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 that's not your story if you've not received life through his death if you've not put your trust in Christ and you're still trying to keep 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 the scales the, the scales balanced in your life of being a good person and hoping that you can 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 appease God in the end and, and make it and by being a good person that's a hopeless it's it it doesn't work you need grace grace that's offered through the provision that He's made through Jesus Christ, you need His perfect record of righteousness accredited credited to your life, as He is, takes your sin upon Himself when He suffered in your place. And so maybe you're coming today, and you're sort of at a crossroads, right there. The gospel—that gospel becomes a crossroads, doesn't it? Am I going to keep clinging to my own self-righteousness, my own works, my own goodness? Am I going to look to the to just cast it all and say I'm a sinner? I have nothing to bring. I need a Savior. I need Christ. If, you, if, you've, not, if you've not looked to Jesus like that by faith, I, I beg you to do that today. Talk with one of us. Talk with somebody sitting around you. Talk to me and we'd love to, to, to help you understand more of what that means. But for, for us, church, we who, who, have, who have come there and we've, we've found Christ to be a sufficient Savior, Christ who was crucified, who raised from the dead, and is even now, He's before the Father and He's pleading, He's interceding for us, church. He's not just left and just kind of watching passively, seeing how things are going. No, he is, he is engaged. He is all in. He is saying, Father, sustain this brother as he battles cancer right now. Help them. Father, give this one strength to stand up for what she believes in this very difficult situation. Give my child strength to identify with me and with my people. As 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 she comes to this crossroads in her life, this uh, this next defining moment in her life, give him faith to be patient, to trust my wisdom, to trust to trust my timing and things as he's walking through this to to walk with me in the next step and relying upon my grace for the next moment. This is what Jesus is doing even today for us. What what encouragement to us? He is he is keeping us. He is holding us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this this beautiful intersection we see in this story of Esther that so resonates with us in our lives. We academically, intellectually, we struggle to reconcile how um, your providence, your sovereign control of all things squares with our choices and our our failures and our circumstances that seem chaotic at times, and yet we get to see these twin realities held for us in front of us. Lord, our confidence is not in our ability to sort all of that out, our confidence is in you. Is that you keep us, you hold us, you preserve us. And so, even as we sing now, Lord, help us to delight in that. To even if in this moment we're really trusting, we're, we're struggling to believe these words, I pray that we will sing. faith and that we church will sing to one another as we sing to the Lord and and you would use this time uh, of song uh, to to minister to us as we as we look to you together in desperation we pray in Christ's name amen